Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, pick up where we left off last week, verses 16 through 29. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 29. Allow me to read this passage to you. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of strong winds were blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land with which they were going. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Son, the Father, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, continue to open our hearts and minds to these truths. Help us to see uh, the struggle that the disciples and the followers had of Jesus, just not truly understanding who he was and where his power came from. But Lord, help us to know that uh, there are no works that we can do other than trusting you through faith, believing in Jesus. Lord, help us to realize that no matter how good we are, we can never earn our salvation, but it's what you have done for us through Christ. Lord, continue to guide us as we study your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage about Jesus walking on the waters is found also in Matthew and Mark. And each of the Gospels takes a little bit different approach. If you go back to Matthew and read that scripture, it kind of focuses on Peter walking on the water with Jesus. And if you go to Mark, it focuses on the crowd that uh, was struggling, that Jesus was, the, the disciples in the crowd that were struggling. And here in John, you really focus on the disciples struggling with who Jesus is and the crowd wanting different things about Jesus. So we look and we see that Jesus once again uh, has the opportunity to bring peace in his presence when he reaches the boat. But at the same time, as we look at these gospels, we realize that he can cease the storms, but there's something more than just ceasing the storms. He, he has to get into the people's hearts and minds as to who he truly is. And that's a struggle. 
Jesus is only on the face of this earth for 30 some odd years. And only about three, three and a half of those years were part of his earthly ministry. Now, he was a man who was born, for most people's sake, born of a carpenter's son from a little place called Nazareth. That's how people knew Jesus. They, they didn't see him as being of God. They didn't see, they weren't thinking about a, a virgin birth and all the things that he fulfilled through prophecy. And people struggle with, who is this man that does these miracles, that has these great teachings? Is he like an Old Testament prophet? Is he somebody who has come and has the power of God in him, brought from God, to do these miracles, which many of the prophets were able to do, and to do these great teachings? Or is it something more than that? Is he truly the Messiah that we have looked for? And the struggle that they had was he didn't match up with what they expected the Messiah to be like. And we'll get to that a little bit more as we, as we study this. So we look at the struggles that the people had about Jesus and the struggle Jesus had of, of convincing people of who he truly is. Now, if you pick up where we left off last week, Jesus said, fed them 5,000 physical food. And for one of the few times in their lives, they were fully sated. In other words, they ate to where they did not want to eat anymore, which was a rarity for them. And then, because of this miracle where he had taken just a handful of loaves of bread and a couple little bitty fish and fed probably somewhere around 20,000 people when you count wives and children and others along the side, they saw not only the miracle, but they felt filled. And this was something unique to them. Most people in those days lived to survive. They very seldom were ever full. There were hardly ever any leftovers, in other words. You didn't just eat until you are content and then have some leftovers for another meal. You ate what was there and hoped it was enough. Most people worked pretty much the whole day just to get the food that they would eat that day. Now, there are people in our world today that, that still live that way, uh, I'm looking at myself, I don't think many of us live that way where we're just living payday to payday, just be able to put just enough food on the table to survive. Most people are doing more than surviving when it comes to food. But that's really the picture there. And so Jesus is dealing with this. And remember, they wanted to take him and force him to be their king, which probably meant that they wanted to take him back to Jerusalem, parade him around town and say, this is a man that we want to be king. And now you got to remember in about a year from now when Jesus goes for that next Passover, he will enter into Jerusalem right in on the colt of a donkey. And he will be proclaiming that he is the king of the Jews. That's God's timetable, not man's. So right now Jesus is trying to distance him, uh, himself away from the crowd. So first of all, he wanted to get the disciples away from the crowd because he did not want them to be influenced by their desire to make him king because the more they hear that and them being the, the, the close-knit people around Jesus, they could see themselves as being the Secretary of State and all these other kinds of uh, positions under Jesus. They could easily be influenced to say, yes, let's make him king. That's what we want. So as evening falls... After he's fed the multitude, after everybody's filled, he begins to separate himself from the crowd because he does not want them to make him king. And so he leaves the crowd, and the first thing he does, he takes the disciples down to the shore. 
Now, only Matthew and Mark show this, that he takes them down to the shore and sends them away by themselves towards Capernaum. Then he went up on the mountainside to be alone. Now, why does Jesus want to be alone? Well, any time Jesus separates himself all by himself, there's only one purpose that he has. That's to get alone, alone with his Father God. That's his intimate time of prayer. And we sometimes struggle, well, why does Jesus need to pray? Because he is God. Who's he praying to, himself? No. We struggle with this understanding of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But in Jesus' earthly form, there's definitely a need for him to, to express his, his weaknesses as a human being and his desire to be true to God, which is what he continuously says, is I can only do what the Father shows me to do. Well, he needs that prayer. He needs that time of, of intimacy with God so that he can stand strong and to do the will of God the Father. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a study called How to Develop a Powerful Prayer Life. Well, that's the kind of prayer life we're trying to develop. It's a time where we get alone with God to show that we are weak in our own physical minds and even our spiritual hearts, that we need that intimate time with God to, to kind of plug in spiritually, to confess our sins, to receive His forgiveness, to lift up the needs that we have in our lives, to lift up the needs around us, and to hear God speak to us through His Spirit. And when we do all these things, God becomes closer to us, more real in our hearts. It's easier for us to hear His, His Spirit speak to us through, through His Spirit. And we can become more obedient, stronger in the, in the faith, and be able to be more open to what God has in store for us each and every day. That's what Jesus is modeling for us when he gets alone with God. It's what we need to be doing on a daily basis as well. And so we look and we see that John simply says that uh, the disciples left in a boat because Jesus had not arrived. Now, the other Gospels basically say that Jesus is the one that sent them off. Now, not too many people like getting in boats at night, but a lot of fishermen do. A lot of fishermen love to fish at night. And... Guess what? The majority of the disciples were fishermen. So they had no qualms about getting in a boat at night. Jesus was, you know, after the miracle of feeding the, uh, the multitude, he wanted them to get away as quickly as possible. So even if it was night, he sent them away. Now, the only problem was they were on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a huge lake. And it's kind of in a fishbowl. It's, it's very much lower than the hillsides around them. And so a cold front could come over any of the hills and swoop down across the warm waters and create an instant storm and turbulent waters. And even today, the Sea of Galilee is known for just sudden storms and, and turbulence across the, across the uh, surface. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples that night. They, they didn't have a motor. They didn't have anything but oars. And so they began rowing. And... The distance from the area where they were at, uh, which was kind of close to Bethsaida, uh, in kind of the hill country, there was a large area, kind of a flat plain just below the hillside where Jesus could easily sit on the hill and speak down to the people. Then they came down to the shore, and when they got in their boats, they began to row. And they rowed, and they rowed, and they rowed. 
the Bible says in the fourth hour, which means that they had rowed all night long into the morning hours. Somewhere between six and eight hours they had been rowing. And they'd only rowed about three miles. And they're just stuck out in the middle of this sea. Not in the true center of it, but in the midst of it. They were not making any progress. They were not getting to their destination. They should have easily made their destination on a clear time of frame. But there's a reason for everything in God's word. They're struggling. They can't get anywhere. And the scriptures even say that Jesus looked out and saw them. Now, three or four miles out across water, you could probably still see. But even if it was too far for the human eye, Jesus knew exactly where they were. Now, here's the situation. Jesus walked on water. Now, for, for you and I, how would we get out to them? Well, we wouldn't because we'd be in the same situation. We would get into another rowboat and start rowing. We'd be in the same tempest of the storm, and we wouldn't be making any progress. So Jesus simply did what Jesus could do, and only Jesus could do. He started walking. didn't matter if it was dry ground or wet water. He walked on it. Now, can you imagine being in that boat and seeing an image coming towards you? Well, if you look at either Matthew or Mark, I can't remember. One of them says they thought they saw a ghost or a spirit coming towards them, and they were terrified. And even in John, it says that they were afraid. They didn't really know what was happening. And then it was Jesus who knew their fears, and he said, It is I. Do not be afraid. And so Jesus simply walks in water. He has separated himself from the crowd. He has separated his disciples from the crowd. He's gotten away with God the Father, and now he's going to be with his disciples. Walking on water. Now, only only Matthew records where Peter walks on water. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus walking on the water, but only Matthew records Peter walking on the water. When Jesus identified himself as he was still walking towards the boat, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, call me forth. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water. Since long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on the water. But then when he looked away and saw the wind and the effects of the wind, the waves, he immediately sank and cried out, Lord, help me. And Jesus reached down and saved him. And I assume they both walked on the water all the way back to the boat and got in. It says immediately the storm ceased. Now, Mark and John do not record this miracle of Peter, with Peter walking on the water. But what we see is that there's always a reason for what Jesus does. Why, first of all, did Jesus send the disciples out into the storm? I believe there's a reason for that. He wanted to have some private time with his disciples. If they had made it all the way to uh, Capernaum, then they would have been in the midst of other people. As soon as Jesus showed up, he would have been swamped by the people around there. He needed some private time with his disciples. And have you ever noticed this one thing? Every time you see the disciples in a boat and Peter is anywhere, and Jesus is anywhere close by, there's going to be a lesson to be learned. Now, earlier, John does not record this, but the other Gospels do. Earlier, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. You remember, he's, he's peace and calm. He's asleep in the back of the boat. And there's a storm brewing once again. 
and the waves are, are coming over into the boat. And the disciples, who many of them, again, were professional fishermen, were afraid that they were going to be capsized, that they were going to drown out in the middle of the sea. And they had to wake Jesus up and say, Master, do you not care that we perish? And Jesus just simply stood up and said, Peace, be still. And the waves calm immediately. What was the lesson there? That Jesus is not just a human being. He has power of God. He has the power over nature, over all creation. And so he was able to use that as another step towards helping the disciples understand who he is. Now, we have here Jesus walking on the waters. Again, the, as soon as he gets there, the waters calm. And in John's case, it says that immediately the boat was at its destination. Now, does that mean as soon as Jesus' foot hit the boat, they were on shore? Or was it just after rowing for six or eight hours that it seemed like we were almost instantly to shore? We don't know. It's hard to always compare from one gospel to another and see you know, how they correlate with each other. What we do know is that Jesus spent time with the disciples. He used it as a teaching lesson. There's one other lesson in the Bible when the disciples were in a boat and Jesus was close by. It's after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples were out fishing. They went back to their old habit, their old nature after Jesus' death. They, they didn't know what to do after Jesus died. They'd been following for some three, three and a half years, and now their leader was gone. And so one of them says, I'm going to go fishing, and the rest of them hopped in the boat with him. And they spent all day. All day fishing. Not a single catch. Now, these are professional fishermen. That was pretty rare. And all of a sudden, there's a man who's standing on the shore and said, Cast your nets on the other side. And they said, Lord, we have been fishing all the time, all day, and caught nothing. But only because you're the one asking us, we'll do it. And they cast their nets on the opposite side of the boat. And they had such a great catch that so they could not even pull it in. What was the lesson there? This is Jesus, the same Jesus who stilled the waters, the same Jesus who walked on the waters, the same Jesus now who shows us he has all power over all creation. Every time Jesus has this intimate time with the disciples, sometimes he does his own miracle with them that nobody else sees. Other times it's simply a time for teaching. But every time it's a way for him to explain and to show that he is not just a man, not just a prophet, but he is the one sent from God, the Messiah. And so Jesus walks on the water again to prove to his own intimate followers, the 12 disciples, of who he is. Now we look and we see the relentless crowd. Now, last week I said there could have been somewhere around 20,000 people. We really don't know. The Bible just simply says there were 5,000 men. If we assume that they're wives and children, we can multiply it any way we want to, get 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, or even more. Only God knows how many were there. But what we find out from the Scriptures here is that the next morning, after these people had gone to sleep, or whatever their situation was, they started looking for Jesus again. If you ate yesterday and got filled, what's going to happen today? 
You're going to need more food, right? They're ready to get fed again. They're looking for the one who fed them, who filled them to, to fl- overflowing pretty much. And they couldn't find him anywhere. They knew that he had been there. They saw his disciples leave without him. They knew he went up on the mountainside. They knew he was in the vicinity. They searched the place over and could not find Jesus. So they went back down to the shore. Any boats that they found were, were where they were supposed to be. No Jesus. And they knew from, at least from Matthew and Mark, that he had sent his disciples to, to Capernaum. And so they said, well, let's go to Capernaum. And some vessels or some small boats came in from Tiberias. Now, these are small boats. These are, I don't know how many people could fit in, 10 or 12, something like that. Now, you think 20,000 people crammed into a few small boats? No. More than likely, many of the ones who had followed finally said, it's time to go back home. We've been, we've been going across the countryside to hear this man preach. We got our stomachs filled. We're strong. Let's get back home while we still got the strength. So I believe that many of them probably headed back home. But there were those curious ones, maybe even the ringleaders, the ones who wanted to make him king, that said, we want to keep following this man. We want to hear more from him. And so they got into the boats, and they went over to Capernaum. And when they got there, they found Jesus. Well, what would be your question when you found Jesus on the other side of a huge lake, a small sea, how did you get here? When did you get here? How did this happen? You didn't leave with your disciples and there were no other boats that left. How did you get here? Well, he could have walked around the shoreline, but the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee is fairly rugged. More than likely, most of the people who followed Jesus, who, who, who ate that multitude, had probably walked that way. But they probably did it during the daytime. Can you imagine trying to walk rough, rugged terrain in the middle of the night? Probably not the way they would have expected Jesus to get there. So they're trying to figure out, how in the world did you get here? Most people that wanted to go across the northern part simply got in a boat and bypassed it. And so that was the question, how did you get here? Is that the question that Jesus is going to answer? No. A lot of times Jesus never answers the question that's being proposed to him. He is more interested in this question. What food are you looking for? What food are you seeking? Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, you seek me not because of the uh, you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the work for the food which per, let me start over. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Now here's Jesus. First of all, he probably would have said. You know, y'all started following me because I was doing all these miracles. As a matter of fact, before he fed the multitude, it says that the people followed him because he was healing so many people. So at first they were following him because of his miracles, his signs, his wonders. But then when they got their stomachs filled, Jesus said, you're no longer even interested in the miracles. You just want a full belly. You just want to be sated again. 
You want to experience that fullness in your stomach that you have not experienced most of your life except for yesterday. So he's saying, truly I truly I say to you, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. This is the only reason why you're following me. Isn't that right? Isn't that the only reason? Well, guess what? That's the reason why most people follow Jesus today. Not necessarily to get their stomachs filled, but for what Jesus can do for them. Many people only want to worship Jesus when they have a need. They only call on the name of Jesus when they have a need. When they say, well, God, I find myself in this situation, in this predicament. I need your help, and I want you to do this for me. But if there's no great need in their life, then mm, just leave me alone. I got things covered. I can live my life my own way. I'll just call on you when there's a need in my life. Y'all do understand that's the way the majority of our world works. They only use Jesus as an emergency button. Oops, I got to pray. I need Jesus. I need, I need a miracle. I need something to happen for me, so I'm going to pray. When there's no emergency, no need to pray. No need for Jesus. Well, that's basically what Jesus is convicting these people of. You're only coming to me for something physical, for a need that you feel like you have. And so we look and we see that this accusation is very real. And it's an accusation for us today. Again, you got to remember, very few of these people ever had a full stomach. And after having been filled it was their desire to to get that repeated but we look and we see that jesus says you need to be looking for the food which endures for eternal life now we're just wanting bread maybe a fish thrown in what are we talking about eternal life for now and jesus this was his greatest struggle people were so focused on their daily needs that they could not even fathom eternal life. They're just trying to get by from morning to night. They're not worried about the thereafter. Did you know what? That's the way our world works today. We're only concerned about from the time that we wake up till the time we go to bed, and we're not worried about eternity. We don't worry about what we don't think that we have a lot of power or control over, a lot of people say, well, that's just fate. It's going to happen one way or another. You know, I don't have much control over it. I'm trying to be a good person. I hope that I'm good enough to get to heaven. If not, there's not much I can do about it. That's the mindset of a lot of, a lot of people today. And obviously, it was the mindset then. They were just focused on their daily needs. They weren't focused on eternity. And that's what Jesus is trying to do is to turn the conversation from physical to spiritual. Folks, when we share the gospel, that's our, strong, that's our greatest uh, obstacle. It's getting people's minds off of the here and now to the then, to the eternity. And so that's what Jesus is focused on now. We need to focus on food which endures for eternal life. And... What what was the way that the people that had gathered around Jesus? They were, these were Jewish people. How were they expecting to get to heaven? How were they expecting to have eternal life? 
Well, they were following the, the teachings of the rabbis. They were following the teachings that they had heard for all their lives, for, for centuries and generation after generation. Here are the laws of Moses. Obey them and you will be saved and you will be with God. Work the works. And so the, the, the followers say, what do we do to work the works of God? Now, really that's three different times that they're talking about works in one sentence. What do we do, which amplifies works? What do we do? What actions do we take to get what you're talking about, to have this food for eternal life? What do we do to work the works of God? In other words, there's got to be something we have to do in order to earn salvation and eternal life. That's what they've been taught their entire lives is obey the laws of Moses and you will be saved from your sins and have eternal life. And that's what Jesus has been dealing with. That's what all the, the, the Gospels tell us. If you read all of uh, Paul's writings, we just dealt with Romans where he was dealing with this same issue over and over with the religious leaders and the people. He was dealing with people's mindset that we can earn salvation. And that, again, is the mindset of most of our world around us. If you look at pretty much all of the world religions other than Christianity, this is the mindset. You have to do enough good works in order to get to heaven, nirvana, or whatever uh, end-time thing that there is. Now, some of them don't even think there's an end-time. They just think that life keeps circling through reincarnation. If you're... If you do enough good works, you come back as something a little higher. If you do bad works, you may come back as a slug or a toad or, or a rock. I don't, how, how do you work past being a rock? I don't know. But we look and we see that the majority of our world's mindset is exactly what Jesus is facing here. What do we do to work the works that will get us to heaven? How do we earn our way there? Well, Jesus gives a very, very simple answer. First of all, when he said, don't focus on working for the food that you provide, that's provided for you today. Instead, focus on the food for eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you. They, they focus on the word work. They just totally ignore the word give. Let me read that to you again. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Y'all see the difference? One, you have to work for food for, for the stomach. The other is the food for eternal life, which the Son of Man gives to you. Do you work for something that's given to you? Do you work for that Christmas present? that birthday gift. It's a gift that is given to you that you really don't even earn or deserve. It's given out of love. And that is what Jesus has spent his entire earthly ministry trying to show. This is a gift of salvation. John 5, 8 says that because of our sins, we, uh, anyhow, because of our sins, we deserve eternal death. 
But God wants to give us the gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And we look and we see that this is always a gift. There's never any strings attached. There's never any physical thing that we have to do to earn it. And that's what Jesus is struggling with with these people. Not only does he give them this gift, but he shows them that he has the authority to give it. Look at the end of verse 27. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now, in in those days, a person of authority had a signet ring. It had a seal on it. And when they would sign something, they would drip some wax on it, and they would push that seal into the ring to show that it was their signature, their, their seal of authority, that this was what's to be done. And they could give someone that they chose a signet ring with their seal on it, and they would have the same authority as them to have the authority to, to say this is how things are to be done. Basically what that is saying is that God the Father had given the same seal of authority to God the Son, Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He has given this as a gift through his Son, God's Son, through the seal from God himself. So God the Father, Jehovah God, that the Jews had worshipped for all eternity, has given Jesus, the Son of God, his seal of authority to give eternal life. He's making it as clear as he can possibly make it. But the question is, are they understanding this? Well, even his own disciples are still struggling. Not only are the multitudes struggling, but his closest group of guys still struggle. That's why they were went fishing after he died and was in a grave. They followed him for three, three and a half years, and now it's all over. They didn't know what else to do. Was he really who he said he was? We don't know. It was only after Jesus raised from the dead and showed his authority over death that they truly, finally believed for good that he was the Messiah. And so we look and we see that uh, he's been given this, this gift from the Father, this seal of approval, and now he's got to answer this question. They ask, what do we do to... Uh, Verse 28, they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Here's the answer. Here's the answer that we still need to share today. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, not man, the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Plain and simple. What do we do to do the work, to, to work the works of God? Nothing. God has done the work through God the Son, and all you got to do is believe on Him. Believe on Jesus. Now, what does it mean to believe on Jesus? Well, I guess it means to believe that there actually was a man named Jesus who walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, right? No, that's not enough. Okay, we believe that He actually did some miracles. Well, that's not enough. There are some Old Testament prophets that did miracles. They didn't have the power to save us. Well, how about that he died and there's actually some proof that he rose from the dead. I believe that. Is that enough? 
Getting close. Not quite enough. We must believe that Jesus is God's answer to sin. We must believe the work of the, the work of God is that you believe in him, Jesus, whom God has sent. You have to believe that Jesus is the sent Messiah, the one who came to save us from our sins, the only one who can give us eternal life. And people say, well, how did he save us from our sins? How do we have eternal life through this one named Jesus? Well, you got to see the end story of Jesus. That when he died, he did not just die a physical death. There's a spiritual part to that. He took your sins, he took my sins upon himself. And he died in our place for our sins. That act was the way for our sins to be canceled. He died in our place so that we would not have to die eternally for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead to prove that he has the power over the penalty of sin, which is death. And when he came back to life, it proves that he has the power to give us eternal life. That is the full answer to verse 29. The work of God is that you believe in him, Jesus, whom he sent. What do you believe? That Jesus has the power to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life. That is the answer. Now, if somebody came to you and spent three years with you trying to teach you everything that they knew, that they thought important for you, would you give them enough time to hear them out, to learn from them? Well, the question would be, is it worth me listening to? Do they have anything worth me learning? That's what most of the world was dealing with with Jesus. They saw him doing some really unique things, but is it something they wanted to invest their lives into? You know, some people go through tutorial programs. They go through uh, mentorship programs because they want to grow. They want to mature. They want to to gain certain talents and abilities, and they see it as worthwhile. So they spend several years uh, under, under guidance from others. That's kind of the picture of the disciples. They saw Jesus as somebody they wanted to follow and to learn from. But even then, they struggled. How about the rest of the world? The rest of the world only saw Jesus in bits and pieces as he came through, healing a person here, doing a miracle there. They saw this miraculous power, but then he was gone. They, they couldn't sit there and listen to him 24-7. They couldn't follow him everywhere they went because they had, to, they had to do works in order to put food on the table so they and their family could eat. Think how difficult it was in that day for the multitudes to come to salvation. That's why it was basically after Jesus' death and resurrection that the proof was there that he had the power to save, that those disciples, minus Judas, add Paul later, add Matthias later, that that handful of guys started going out across the world sharing this gospel, and it turned the world upside down. They had not only seen, but they believed. Seeing is one thing, but believing in your heart 
is the next thing. You have to understand that we must believe in the power of Christ, for that is the gospel that saves. That's the same gospel we share today, that Jesus has all authority to save us from our sins, to give us eternal life. He is the only way to salvation. You you remember uh, uh, Thomas asked Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going or how we get there. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other religion on the face of this earth that believes that. We're the only ones. We're the only ones that believe that Jesus is the only answer to salvation. That means there's a multitude of people in our world today that will never go to heaven. They'll be good people. They will have followed a set of rules and regulations to do what they think is right. But they will not enter into heaven. We wonder, God, are you sending that many people to hell? No, they're sending themselves to hell. Remember John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he, another verse 2 down, he says, Those who believe will not be judged, but those who do not believe have been judged already. It's by their unbelief that they have judged themselves and condemned themselves. That's the simple truth to the gospel. We, as God's people, we weren't the twelve called ones, the disciples, but you and I are still called. If you answer the call to salvation, then you are a called one. And we need to be just as busy sharing these simple truths as this twelve. Yes, a handful of people can still turn the world upside down. But we need faith in our hearts that God can work in us and through us to do just that. Let's close the prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you realizing that, Lord, this this concept of belief versus works is still a struggle in our own hearts. We believe that we must be good people. And Lord, very seriously, we are to be good people. But Lord, there's a difference between being good in order to earn something and being good to honor someone. Lord, we can never be good enough to earn our salvation. We work and do good works to honor you for what you've already done and given us that gift of salvation. But Lord, help us to face this world around us that that struggles with the concept that that salvation, eternal life, is a gift given. And the only way to receive it is through belief. Belief in the Son of God. Belief in Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, if we can share those truths with the world around us, then Your Spirit can work in their hearts and lives through Your Word and transform them into believers. Lord, we cannot do anything in our own power, but we can be tools used by you to share the gospel, to minister to needs in your name, to lead people to the true gift of salvation. Lord, help us be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.